This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Lena Creamer, your coffee's new best friend. Lena Creamer is a coconut-based, sugar-free, and lactose-free perfect addition to your morning cup of joe that will help curb cravings and boost metabolism. Finally, a great-tasting, healthy, and guilt-free coffee creamer that gives you an amazing flavor with each sip. Plus, it's paleo and keto-friendly. It's the only all-natural powder creamer on the market, and with a shelf life of 18 months, can be used in a variety of ways, such as baking as a sugar substitute. I like to have it in my morning oatmeal. Want to know a secret? The Leaner Creamer website has fun recipes located in their blog. The banana cream pie parfait looks delicious. The Leaner Creamer also has a Leaner Me coffee that is Keurig-compatible, earth-conscious, sustainable pods. The coffee is made with high-quality beans and infused with a blend of natural supplements that work to increase metabolic rate as well as a mild appetite suppression. I'm a light roast kind of gal, but they also have medium and dark roast options. There are many different creamer options and Coffee Plus creamer packages to choose from, and as a true crime real-time listener, you'll qualify for a 15% discount using promo code REAL15. That's R-E-A-L-15. So do yourself a favor and head on over to leanercreamer.com and try a flavor. The link's in the show notes. Today's episode, we'll be exploring the Canadian Correctional System. This is a federal government agency that's responsible for the imprisonment and reintegration of offenders or convicted criminals in Canada. Anyone who is sentenced to two or more years serves their time under the watch of the federal government. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. The word penitentiary stems from the medieval Latin word penitentiaria, which means penance or repentance. One of the first penitentiaries in North America was in Philadelphia, which started operating in the late 1700s. They focused on penitence, which is isolation, work, and religious contemplation. This framework influenced the design and operation of penitentiaries all over the world. It's the Auburn system which had major influence on the design and development of the Canadian correctional penitentiaries, though. 
The Auburn system was developed at the Auburn Penitentiary in New York. It incorporated all that the Philadelphia system had, but also added labor, as they believed that work and training would help in the reintegration of offenders into society once their sentence was served. 1868 was the year that several prisons in Canada were brought under federal jurisdiction under the first Penitentiary Act. The early system in place would incorporate labor or work during the day, solitary confinement during leisure hours, and a rule of silence at all times. There was no parole, but prisoners demonstrating good conduct could potentially get up to three days per month dispatched from their sentence. This system was revamped in the late 1930s after a review of the penal system was completed, following a few major riots and strikes. The changes emphasized on crime prevention and the rehabilitation and reintegration of prisoners. The changes didn't actually come into place until after the Second World War, though. Following prison disturbances, likely from boredom, a new committee was formed in 1953 to come up with a solution to these behavioral issues. The committee came to the conclusion that the prison systems should also provide vocational training, rehabilitation programs, pre-release, and aftercare programs. They also indicated a need for additional, better-trained personnel with professional qualifications, such as social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, legal specialists, etc. The biggest name to fame for this committee was the development of the National Parole Board, which was created in 1959. This system replaced the previous system in place. The Penitentiary Act was amended in 1961 to include the recommendations from the committee, and at this time they also started to build 10 new federal penitentiaries in Canada. For this episode, we had the opportunity to speak with two separate people who work for Corrections Canada services, one of which started working for Corrections Canada in the 1970s. Well, I started out for the federal government uh, institution in 1973. I started out as a shop instructor, uh, teaching inmates how to uh, paint. It was a trade, but also we were doing the maintenance painting in the institution. Um, in time, I uh, was promoted to work supervisor, looked after a few shops through different trades, and some time later to a chief of works, which we had a budget then, and uh, all construction as well. And I worked for the federal government Correctional Service Canada for 35 and a half years. I did spend six months at their regional office, uh, being the environmental officer. And I ended up my career in another institution as the chief of engineering and maintenance or chief facilities management. What systems or programs are in place for guards? Well, when they first start, they're uh, tested, various tests psychological tests and everything else. And that following that, it will go through what you call an initial core training. And then there's an orientation, but also a, a training of what are the responsibilities uh, of a correctional officer. But of course, first they have to learn what corrections is about, the criminal justice system is about, which legislation governs, uh, governs us, corrections and conditional release act, and various things like that, the mission statement, the core values. But Paul, that's all part of the orientation, the beginning. So they have to come to know CSC's role and correctional officers' duties and responsibilities as well. Uh, they also have ongoing training, maybe once a year or so, with, on safety aspects or other things that would apply. Um, you mentioned uh, programs in place for guards. There's several, but I can think of the employee assistance program, which covers some areas where an employee can seek assistance. 
more problems or issues or health and some issues more of a personal nature away from the institutional nature. How many security classifications are there and what are their names? Um, basically, institutions are classified as maximum, medium, minimum, or multi-level security facilities. And these ratings, of course, they dictate behavioral norms that define expected behavior for inmates at each security level. Um, and the degree of control that's required to maintain the good order of the institution and to protect the staff, the inmates, and the public. The Correctional Service is responsible for about 57 institutions in Canada. And out of those 57, five are regional mental health facilities, five are regional women's institutions, and five are designated Aboriginal facilities as well. So these are the classifications, uh, the, the main ones, maximum, medium, minimum, and multi-level, plus regional treatment centers. Um, you can go in after that, but there's, there's different uh, aspects in the correctional program we'll discuss later. What are the criteria for an offender to come under the jurisdiction of Correctional Services Canada? The courts, I guess, decide that. The Correctional Service is the federal agency that's responsible for administering the sentences of a term of two years or more, uh, as imposed by the courts. Uh, CSC uh, offers a variety of programs for offenders within the institutions, and uh, those on parole, in fact, as well, to assist them to successfully reintegrate society as law-abiding, contributing citizens. That's, that's the objective. Uh, but CSC doesn't determine the guilt or innocence of the persons that are charged under the criminal code, or uh, that is done by the courts. Automatically, they would go into the federal jurisdiction for correctional services if they're sentenced to two years and over, but if it's yes. under that, I guess it's the provincial? It falls under the provincial, yes. Okay. Uh, there are a few mitigating circumstances, by exception, that was maybe a specific program would be required for somebody serving a little less, but it's very rare. It's basic to general rule. Can you tell me a little bit about the reformation and rehabilitation programs? Yeah, well, there's a mission statement. I can tell you what that is. The Correctional Service of Canada, as part of the criminal justice system, uh, respecting the rule of law, contributes to the public safety by actively encouraging and assisting offenders become law-abiding citizens while exercising reasonable, safe, and secure, and humane control. That's the mission. Of course, there's core values uh, in that mission, respecting the dignity of the individuals. Uh, the offender has the potential to live as a law-abiding citizen, if he so desires, with some assistance. And uh, our strength, we believe, uh, our strength and major resource is the staff. And human relationships are the cornerstone of that. Sharing of ideas knowledge and values and experience, managing the service with openness and integrity. That's basically the core values, the basic part of it. There's a little more than that, too. We're governed by the conditional, the Corrections and Conditional Release Act and quite a bit of other legislation as well. Well, CSC uh, for sentencing, for example, it begins for CSC at the
to the best of your knowledge, can you walk me through what a new inmate would go through when entering the Federal Corrections Facility? Yes. I'll let my wife, she worked at the reception center. But when an inmate first comes in from the courts, um, they are come into a reception facility, and then a whole lot of things happen in that reception facility at the beginning of their sentence. So when uh, it's the sheriff that brings the offender to the reception center, and the reception unit for the federal prison system is in Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, for the Atlantic Crosses. So that's where they go first. And uh, along with the offender, the sheriff also brings that person's uh, personal effects that they had when they were arrested. And also they bring the court documents, the transcripts, uh, the judge's comments and recommendations. So this all goes to the sentence manager, and she studies that, or he studies that, whoever's in, at the head of that department. Uh, the first thing that um, is done for that offender, he's given an FPS number, which uh, he will have the whole time that he is in the federal prison system for that offense or for any further uh, offenses in the future. Um, the other departments are notified of this new arrival. The court transcripts and judges sentence comments are studied to determine the length of the sentence, the type of offense, and any programs recommended before their release. And that department, the sentence management department, sets all the bring forward dates to, uh, that are needed to be set by law and also in line with the National Pro Board. So that offender has to see five different departments during that six weeks that they are in reception. So they have assigned to them a psychologist, an educator, a programs officer, a parole officer, and also a sentence management officer. So all of their testing and reports that each of these five um, departments all have to be done within the six-week period. And it has to be shared, finished and finalized, signed by the offender, shared with the offender, and shared with the National Parole Board. And this all has to be done within that six-week period. And then uh, by the length of the sentence or type of offense, that determines which institution that that offender will be sent to because each institution has their own programs. And if an offender is uh, uh, is told by the judge he needs um, anger management, well, then they would go to, like, the Dorchester Institution for that. Uh, other issues are other prisons or institutions. So that's basically how it works in reception. Yeah, I can add a little bit on that as well. The offender population, of course, at, at the reception at the beginning, there's an offender intake assessment, as Diane mentioned, an approach that evaluates risk and correctional needs. It determines the offender's security classification, whether it's maximum, medium, or minimum, based on escape risk, public safety risk, institutional adjustment. Uh, the transfer decision is made following that, and it determines the security level and the institutional offender will be housed at, and it's based, it's based on how best to accommodate his or her needs and risk. Now, there's a correctional plan. I think you had a question on that as well.
Uh, yes, I was going to ask, how is the correctional plan developed? Uh, once the placement's made, a correctional plan is developed for each offender, personalized each each offender. It's based on the re results of the uh, offender intake assessment, and it's based on addressing the specific factors that relate to the offender's criminal behavior. Or, uh, as an example, if substance abuse is a problem and was a contributing factor in the offense of many offenders, then the plan will focus on breaking the cycle of substance abuse. Uh, if violence is a problem, well, then the plan will focus on teaching offenders to understand the dynamics of their abuse and train them to replace these abusive behaviors with more positive, non-abusive skills and content, for an example. So the correctional plan details all the programs, interventions, activities to be undertaken by the offender to address the reasons that led to their incarceration. Um, it acts as a yardstick a, a, as well in which to measure the offender's progress of the sentence. Um, it's a considerable, the progress is a significant consideration in all the decisions that relate to the offender, uh, and that includes transfers to reduce security level or conditional releases, and must be said that public safety is always a paramount consideration in these decisions. And as you said, is it customized for offender? Yes, it is. And another thing is the security classification of an offender is reviewed annually or biannually. If new information is provided, leads to a recommendation in the change, that is done as well. So it's research-based tools, and uh, it, uh, it's reviewed, so it's, it's kept up to date. It's important to understand that the term uh, cascading does not mean that the offenders are fast-tracked through the system. There's no regard for the risk. If the risk is assessed, their security uh, level is reviewed before that can happen or change can happen as well. So the transfer of an offender to a lower security level depends on their progress at the current level and also upon the assessment of the risk for public safety, uh, escape, institutional adjustment. Uh, the length of the sentence is, is also a factor, of course, with how many programs and how many things, interventions can be done. Can you tell us a little bit about the different tests that are done in these different departments in the first six weeks when they're in intake? There's some uh, psychological tests, various uh, tests of their ability. It relates to their crime. It relates to the recommendations of the court. And it also relates to the offender intake assessment. Some tests are made as part of the intake assessment uh, and others with a view to establish a correctional plan. But there's various tests. I'm not sure of all of the individual ones. We tested on their education to see what level they're at to see if they have comprehension yes. for the different programs that they'd have to take. So they're tested in their schooling. In the psychological testing, it, it covers a lot of areas. Not only if they have any deviance, but also to see if they basically tell the truth or if they lie. It, it tests that. There's quite a few tests that the psychology department uses that for their personality. Uh, what type of testing are done on um, individuals that are being convicted of any kind of sexual-related offense? For those who cannot read, they have video-type testing. And um, they have, um, well, there's about five different tests that they take. Determine where the, um, the 
what their deviance is, exactly. To see if it's for little girls, to see if it's for little boys, to see if it's for uh, women or men. That That's all determined by those type of tests that they have. And they use some other testing that companies in this area use to for hiring people as well, to see if they are people who are honest or, or if they're just uh, crooked. There are quite a few differences, like uh, uh, perhaps somebody who came in on a manslaughter um, sentence uh, would be quite different from a sexual offender. Uh, a manslaughter could be a one-time, a one-time offense, um, and it was it anger-related. So there's anger management uh, training or courses that are given, programs that are given. Um, they would be, if that was the case, would be honest and have good working habits and in other things. So that would be a different assessment altogether and a different uh, correctional plan than perhaps a sexual offender or perhaps a repeat offender who's into drugs uh, a lot, or again, substance abuse, or again, somebody who steals, who's into theft and, and fraud and so on. So each one is, is addressed according to their needs. Are there still these types of rehabilitation programs for dangerous offenders? dangerous sexual offender. Not, CSC does not determine that. 
somebody like Alan Legere obviously was deemed as a dangerous offender by the courts, what type of testing would they've typically done on somebody like him that's committed various different types of crime from homicide that included sexual assaults and he's also obviously arson and um, theft. I really can't answer that. Uh, wasn't involved. Um, I, the initial part of the sentence, of course, would be warehousing for keeping, you know, the public safe and the, the staff safe. That would be the first thing because a person is dangerous. They would be dangerous to either other inmates as well or other staff members. So that would be the paramount thing first. In time, if the individual shows a change, change, behavioral change and things, in time they may come to have some form of programming uh, assigned to them based on uh, their correctional needs. Sometimes a dangerous offender doesn't even come into the reception center. They're sent, to, they're sent directly to a maximum security institution, and it's only later on in their sentence like I said, when they've mellowed out that they start doing any type of testing or reviewing or... Their attitude and uh, yeah. demonstrated attitude over a period of time. Okay, that makes sense. So, as a representative of the institution that handles such a specific group of inmates, what programs are in place to help them keep some sense of normalcy? There, there's an established routine, an institutional routine that mimics outside life. Five days a week, they go to work. Uh, they, they can ask for a specific type of work, whether it's in the trades or whether it's uh, for Corcan Industries and, and, and different types of work. Or they may go to school if there's a need for schooling as well. Or they may be assigned to certain programs. So during the day, that's established routine. You go to work, programs, or school. Uh, unless you're disabled, well, then it's same as people on the outside that are being disabled. The weekend is kind of the weekend mode or the holiday. Then they have some recreation. They can go to the gym. They can uh, play a few sports or do some weights or whatever. Or they can go in the yard and get some fresh air. There, there are times, recreation times. Um, or they can stay in their unit, read, watch TV, um, as you was a, a person on the outside would do. So that maintains a sense of normalcy. They can write. They, they can call some loved ones. Um, they can write, receive letters, receive visitors. So that tends to maintain that sense. And it's important that they maintain family ties for the most part because uh, most offenders will be released and uh, they'll have to go to their family. What kinds of things are they not permitted? Obviously, there's going to be some types of television or access to the internet or things like that that are going to be um, that they're not going to be able to or be permitted to have access to. So what kinds of things like that exist? They do not have access to drugs um, or to tobacco um, or the internet. They do have cable television if they pay for it themselves. It's, it's a reduced rate, of course, because you bring in cable. For 400 inmates in one in one area, it's going to be a little less per inmate. It used to be four or five dollars a month each, but they can pay that from uh, the work that they do. They get a little stipend for much a day, so they can. 
So a while back, there was a big hoopla on the news because a convicted killer was on a dating site for inmates. That's kind of by proxy. It's not uh, the, the, the inmate does not directly go. I, uh, I believe that there's um, they can write to someone, some organization that puts their profile online or something, and somebody can write to them by letter. They don't have access to the internet themselves. But there are there is a, an organization or a group of do-gooders supposedly out there that the inmate can send in writing their, their things and that it's put online by that group. And anybody that responds can write to the inmate at the uh, a normal letter in writing. Okay, so it's not a program that's offered by CSC. Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. <laughs> and all letters that arrive are opened and checked out before they are given handed on to the offender. Yeah, for drugs or any other improper things that yeah. would be in contained. Like stamps. They don't allow stamps through the letters because people lace stamps with drugs that they can lick off. The glue. The glue, yeah. So they, if somebody on the outside wants to send stamps, it won't get to the offender. Yeah, or if somebody would put a nicotine patch or two, which can be used as a drug, um, that's why the letters are open and we check for uh, items like that. That's a contraband. So the routine gives a sense of normalcy and, and they have cable TV. Obviously, there's some restrictions as to um, what can be shown. But some people get into a little bit of a tizzy because they're thinking, oh, they have all these op- things that they shouldn't have. But really, the reality is, is that gives them a sense of normalcy that assists with the rehabilitation, but also that serves as a protection to the people who work at these facilities as well as the correctional officers, right? following the programs, they usually put them down to the minimum security so that they can learn to reintegrate into society even more. So they're put into housing units where they have to do their own cooking, they have to do their own cleaning, they're given actual cash uh, so that they can go buy their own food, so they have to learn how to do a budget and and get along with the other people in the housing unit with them have a lock to their own cell or their own door. It's like a rooming house. So they're taught all of those uh, traits or abilities so that when they do get out and are in a rooming house, they'll know how to socialize with other people without being able to function like a human. So bearing in mind the, the vast, well, pretty well, vast, vast majority of offenders will be released at some point. And they need incentive to better themselves, uh, having that sense of normalcy and, and being kept in contact with the outside world through the television and visitors uh, and family. Well, certainly contributes to that because when they are released, there's a much better uh, opportunity to remain uh, law-abiding. And not reoffend. What are some differences between the Canadian correctional system compared to that of the United States? Uh, state corrections, uh, the federal corrections 
review of uh, later, later releases going to address the uh, criminogenic factors uh, that led to the inmate uh, behavior and offenses so that eventually when they are to be released, either on parole or at the end of their sentence, uh, that they're better prepared to uh, reintegrate the society. What roles does the parole board play within the correctional services system? Well, they play quite a, an important role. Um, the National Parole Board, it's an independent administrative tribunal, and it has a sole authority under the Corrections and Conditional Release Act to grant, deny, terminate, or revoke day parole or full parole. And the board also has the authority to hold certain offenders in prison until the end of their sentences. That means warrants expiring. The board makes conditional release decisions for offenders that serve two years or more, of course, in federal penitentiary, but also for those that serve less than two years in the provinces and the territories that don't have their own parole boards. Uh, and only in Ontario and Quebec have their own parole boards at this time. So for all other provinces and territories, the parole board will make those decisions as well. Um, they also have the authority, the National Parole Board, to grant, deny, or revoke pardons under the Criminal Code of Canada and the Criminal Records Act. And a pardon, that's a formal attempt to remove the stigma of a criminal record for people who, having a conviction, have satisfied the sentence and remained crime-free. And, uh, of course, a person has to make an application for this. And finally, the Board also makes recommendations for the exercise of clemency royal prerogative of person, which is a little rare. Uh, it's headed by a chairperson, the parole board, national parole board, and that person reports to parliament through the minister of public safety. And uh, it's important to note that the minister doesn't have the statutory authority to give direction to the chairperson or other members of the national parole board in their exercise of their decision-making powers regarding the conditional release of offenders like parole, things like that. Uh, the reason for that and that structure is that it ensures the board's independence, the impartiality and the integrity of the decision-making uh, process. So what are the different types of staff in the correctional facilities? Well, of course, we have security correctional officers, security, uh, two levels. We have program officers who uh, deliver programs, various programs would be uh, um, living, uh, you know, violent program and various programs. We have the parole officers and they are like case management officers. They manage each. They have a caseload of maybe 25 or 22, 25 inmates. They manage that and work with them off and on. We have uh, schools, uh, school instructors, trades instructors or, or trades or shops where uh, inmates will work. Uh, such as Corcan, they have contracts in Corcan Industries and there's maintenance work, of course, as well. Uh, they have contracts, like safer with the military to restore military trucks or uh, do other work or, or make things for other government departments. Uh, it's all for nonprofit, of course. Uh, we do not compete with the private sector uh, in that area. We have medical staff. We have psychological staff, clerical staff. Um, so there's a variety of staff that are necessary to maintain the institution and maintain the, uh, all the services uh, that are required, as we've already
Would the biggest bucket of types of staff be the correctional officers? Yes, of course, because there's three shifts, 24-7, so obviously there would be more people. Um, most of the other staff are, are day, daytime staff. Of course, medical staff would be there more. Uh, there's always a nurse on duty. Uh, doctors are on contract. But other than that, most of the other staff, they are five days a week. Correctional staff, well, they have to be there 24-7, so there's more of them for that reason. So what are the different types or levels of the correctional officers? There's basically two, uh, two or three. There's a CX, what they call a CX-1 and a CX-2, uh, two levels. The CX-2, CX-1 is basically down to the security of the institution. They will work the uh, back shift, which is from 11 to 7 in the morning, where everything is locked up. Um, they will work uh, perimeter security. They will, And when everybody first comes in as a correctional officer, they are a CX-1. But you can apply to become a CX-2, which is slightly better paid. But you're much more involved with the inmates. You're involved with their correctional plan. You're, you have a caseload of so many inmates assigned to you as well. You have to write progress reports, uh, sit down with them and have thoughts. So there's much more involvement here with the correctional plan for the inmates. A CX-3 is a supervisor in the uh, security department. And they carry guns or batons? Uh, no, they have handcuffs and uh, pepper spray uh, just in case something develops and uh, they need some control. Of, let's say they're inmates start to fight and it, it, the idea is to stop it from escalating, to de-escalate fast, so to keep violence down. Uh, no, there are no guns inside the penitentiary or they would take it, take them away from you and you use them on you. So the guns in the, that are just uh, on the perimeter on the, the outside? Uh, the very secure area uh, in case of some rioting or in case of somebody trying to escape. And in the, the patrol officer outside, there are two patrol officers and vehicles. They are armed as well. Mitigate any threat that would come from the outside. But uh, the inmates do not have access to them with the separation there. But anyone that's inside the institution where the inmates are, there are no weapons. What's the difference between a maximum security prison and a supermax prison? So in a maximum security, the perimeter is well defined. It's highly secure, highly controlled. The movement of offenders is strictly regulated and supervised. Now, a supermax, which there's only two in Canada as far as I know, uh, is that many. Um, they're basically higher security again, but that's for based on again on the behavior of offenders who do not respond or not control well in the maximum security institution. They are a threat to staff or other inmates. Therefore, it's a, it's a last resort type of thing. There's not that many. The most of the ones are in maximum security. What is the Citizens Advisory Committee, and what role do they play? CSC, Correctional Service Canada, has been legally mandated by the Corrections and Conditional Release Act to involve members of the public in matters that relate to our operations. So, presently, Citizens Advisory Committees are attached to most personal operational units or penitentiaries, institutions in each of the regions. Now, the members of the uh, Citizens Advisory Committee are appointed, and CSC is responsible for their training. The local members 
citizens involved in 106 citizens advisory committees across Canada. And the members will represent various social, cultural, and demographic backgrounds and occupations. And usually will be living in proximity to the operational unit, like near Dorchester, if it's Dorchester Penitentiary, or near Spring Hill, if it's Spring Hill Institution. And the members, they're appointed for a period of two years by the Deputy Commissioner of the region, so based on the recommendation of the designated DSC warden or district director of parole offices. And it's in consultation with a specific committee involved. So this advisory committee provides a means for the community to represent and express itself in CSC's work. And their role is to provide advice, act on as impartial observers, to act as a liaison between the offenders, the staff, and the public. And the goals are all there to promote public knowledge and understanding of corrections through good communication among you know, offenders, staff, and the public, and foster participation in the correctional process. Can you tell me about the classification of dangerous offender, how it's deemed and by whom, and what type of sentence is given typically? We did touch on that already. Um, again, that's done by the court. It could be dangerous or dangerous sexual offender. That's usually come about when somebody is a, a repeat offender or the nature of the crime is such that uh, the, past, the past offenses and the offense itself is such that the person is deemed to be so dangerous that the public has to be protected uh, from that. So that's by the court. The sentence generally given, uh, it's indeterminate. They can become eligible for parole. Again, the onus is more on them. Some program, some help is offered, but they need to demonstrate uh, change, change behavior, change thinking, change attitude, and so on. So they may be in for a long time. Which type of institutions uh, did you work at? Well, when I started out, it was a maximum security. And then they built a new institution. It became the maximum. Dorchester was then uh, became a medium security institution. So I worked there, and I worked in Spring Hill, which is another medium security. I worked for a year at the minimum institution, uh, Westmoreland. And uh, now it's a multi-level institution. Uh, and I did spend some time at the regional office as a, an environmental officer uh, to implement environmental programs in our institution. What type of environmental programs did you do there? Um, basically, we set up recycling, uh, water conservation, um, energy conservation programs uh, in each of the institutions. Not just recycling, but uh, waste management and training the inmates to sort and separate the waste. And much as people do on the outside, uh, with a view to help the environment. So courses were given... Training was given, uh, sessions were given, and came up with a program to uh, promote uh, environmental stewardship. Doing what we could as an institution to reduce our footprint, our environmental footprint. And you, you'd mentioned this before, but when did you start working for Correctional Services Canada? September 1973. So you were in the corrections before capital punishment was officially wiped off the books. When but the federal did never administer capital punishment. That was done at a provincial uh, level. Oh, really? I didn't know that. 
I thought that was would have been done only at a federal level. Interesting. Can you describe the hierarchy of CSC? So the warden of a maximum security prison or of any prison, who would they report into? So can you tell me some interesting or frightening occurrences you've experienced in the time you served at a maximum security prison? So were you there when there was a riot?
go in and, and work when it was possible to do so. Uh, How old were yeah. you at that time? Oh, I was in my 20s, early 30s. It was it was difficult. There was some rioting, and uh, yeah, I remember one time they were holed up in the gym and throwing billiard balls out and everything else, and nobody could go near there because you'd be either be taken hostage or whacked with a something. So yes, it was quite uh, difficult at that time too. When there was incidents, uh, you had to have a lockdown to control the situation, and. Um, Sometimes there's a lockdown for a search as well to remove contraband that could be dangerous uh, or used as a weapons weapons against other inmates or against staff. What's the longest lockdown you've went through where you were stuck there? Uh, four or five days, I guess. Do you have any recent stats on Canada's rehabilitation plan success? So repeat offenders, do you have a percentage of that? 
random searches um, inside the of inmates inside the institution, random searches of cells and uh, shop areas. You rely on intelligence as well, which is information that can flow from one observation, observation reports, and training, you know, how to be aware of things. And there's a briefing every day that uh, that staff know maybe what some of the intelligence is, some of the things to watch for. Um, be aware, whether it's coming in outside or some anything that any some suspicious activity around the institution and so on. So that's basically yes to do that. What are those dry toilet things they have in Alberta? Oh, we have them here too. Uh, although to a lesser degree now, they're not used as much. Uh, if you suspect that someone is swallowed some drugs, let's say in a condom, or because condoms are pretty tough, they'll, they'll go through your digestive system, um, and they want to pass them, if you, particularly if more than suspect, you've got fairly reliable information uh, that came through. Then you ask the person, and if they say no, and you're pretty sure of your information, it's sound, then you can put them in what you call a dry cell, which means that they go to the washroom, but it falls into a screened area where you can wash, wash through it and, and pick out anything. You, it could be up to three days, usually two. Then if they have been carrying these, or they can submit to an x-ray if they prefer. And uh, But if you're carrying, you usually will say no. Therefore, you go in a dry cell and they'll poop it out. And, and the dry cells under camera as well. So if they poop it out and swallow it back, well, someone it should be on the recorded on the camera thing. Ugh! Would they actually poop it out and swallow it back with poop yes. still on it? Yep. If you've got uh, drugs there that are worth a couple thousand dollars, a bag of pills and a condom, or or yeah, you know, two thousand dollars. Yeah. With it's poop on done. it though. Oh yeah, been done. Oh, gross. Like drugs, I guess. I guess. What was it like on your psyche to be surrounded by criminals for the majority of your working life? Uh, it was sometimes quite difficult. It has an effect on our health, that's for sure, on trying to keep our thinking straight. Uh, one needs good outside activities, a good outside life, and um, so was to be able to remain better grounded. And uh, depending on the experiences, you know, and, and being exposed to uh, incidents can be very stressful at times. PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, is real and it's common. Uh, like I said one time, I had ulcers and dreams and various things, and I'm sure my family was affected by it, as I was. I did have a burnout once as well. So, so you really need outside family support and a good set of social contacts to maintain your balance and remain grounded. In my case, because I was promoted to supervisory and then chief, I still had inmates, but I was not working directly with inmates all day long. I had shop instructors uh, that worked, and I would go in and out of the shops and go to the work board to hire some inmates as well, um, hire some at times, but I was not directly in contact with them in my supervisory or management position.
Do you have like a general population and segregation area, right? So for the housing units, though, there are, like, there, there's classifications of, I guess, offenders that are put together and some that are separated out from a general type of population, right, for security or safety? Um, not so much anymore. Really? Um, they, don't, they don't separate out, like, sexual offenders and stuff from... Oh, okay. Um, others would be the general population would be on some other units. Okay, so it's just like a, it, they're still, they don't have like a segregation type of thing. It's just a different unit, but they don't interact together.
they have chaplains and stuff like that that go in there oh, yeah. as well? Yeah. This wraps up our episode on the Canadian Correctional Services System. I want to extend a special thank you to our two guests, retired Chief of Engineering from Spring Hill Institution, as well as retired professional from the Reception and Intake Unit at the Spring Hill Institution. It was a pleasure to speak to both of you. And while you guys wait for the next episode of True Crime Real Time, here's a promo from Sooner State True Crime. Hey, True Crime Real Time listeners, Cece here, the host of the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. We focus on cases based in my wonderful home state of Oklahoma. And since the term Sooner actually refers to the state's very first true crime, cheaters in the land run, Oklahoma is definitely a crime state. Sooner State True Crime can be found in most podcast apps. Or visit our website, anchor.fm slash crimestate. New episodes are released twice a month. Follow us on Twitter at crimestate for upcoming episodes and more. So, come away with me and discover my crime state on the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or case suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at truecrimerealtimepod at gmail.com or complete the case submission form on our website. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of True Crime Real Time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating and leave us a review. This will help our reach and bring more attention to the cases we cover. Mm-hmm.